Let's take a few more moments to refresh our minds about the way this school, the Vabashika school, explains the two truths, conventional truths and ultimate truths. So imagine you're in the kitchen putting away the dishes and you're holding a nice porcelain plate in your hands and going to put it away on the shelf. And then suddenly it slips out of your hands and crashes onto the floor, breaking into many, many pieces. So there'll probably be some emotional reactions coming up in your mind, maybe some embarrassment, self-criticalness, maybe some fear about somebody getting angry at you for doing this and so on. But put those aside and just look at that mass of pieces lying on the floor. Do you see a plate there? There was a plate a short time before, but now is there still a plate there in all those pieces? So obviously not. And according to this school, the Vabashika school, that indicates that the plate was a conventional truth, just true conventionally, but not ultimately, because if we take it apart, physically or mentally, we no longer perceive that object. And now imagine picking up one of those pieces and pretend that you have some kind of super psychic ability to look into it and see all the components, all the different particles that make up that piece of porcelain. You can see the molecules, the atoms, the subatomic particles, and you could see right down to the tiniest particles. They can't be broken down any further. And according to this school, those extremely minute particles don't have spatial extension. They don't have sides that you can identify as top or bottom or left side, right side, and so on. And those extremely minute particles are considered by this school to be ultimate truths. They are ultimately true. They are ultimately existing because they can't be broken down any further. So your perception of them as particles will not be canceled, will not disappear. And those are the basic building blocks of all matter, all physical things, our bodies and tables and chairs and buildings and everything everything that's physical that we know of.
ultimately true. So I think that contemplating this school's view of things can be helpful um, in that it helps us to recognize that most of the things that we deal with in our life, like our bodies and all the material things around us, uh, although they appear solid and permanent and they don't seem to be made of parts, but in fact they are, so it's useful to realize that they are made of parts and the parts are made of parts and those parts are made of parts and so on and so on down to these very, very tiny particles. And also all of our thoughts, our mental states, thoughts and emotions and so on, those can also be broken down into um, parts in the sense of uh, very short moments of experience. And those can be broken down further and further and further until we get to an extremely brief uh, moment of mind or experience. It can't be broken down any further. So I think that contemplating this can help us to have less attachment and aversion, help us, of course, to understand impermanence and that things are not as solid as they appear. So I think that can help to decrease our afflictive emotions in relation to these different objects. And I think it is a stepping stone towards the um, higher views, like Prasangika view. But it seems that they don't go far enough in their analysis, because even though they break things down and get to these very, very tiny particles of matter and very brief moments of mind, they stop there. They stop there and say, oh, those things are ultimate truths. They are ultimately true. And they don't go any further in their analysis. Whereas the like Prasangika school would go further and analyze those very tiny uh, particles and moments of mind and discover that they, they are not ultimate truths. They are not ultimately existing, but they are also made up of parts and dependent on causes and conditions and mental labeling and so on. And so, um, yeah, it would be, from the Prasangika point of view, silly to call those things ultimate truths, ultimately existing. But I think the other schools, other than Prasangika, like this school, I think they're, maybe they're scared, <laughs> you know, it's scary to go there and maybe worried about falling into nihilism. Like, how can you explain things if there's nothing there? If, like Nagarjuna says, you know, can't really find anything solid and fixed to point to. So, um, yeah. But it's a stepping stone, I think. It's a step towards the prasangika view. Okay, so let's go on. Um, at the end of our last 
class, we were looking at this rather confusing explanation of these two different terms that sound quite similar. And in fact, all the other Buddhist schools say they are the same, but only this school makes a difference between them. So I wanted to try to clarify that. Um, so the two terms are substantially established and substantially uh, existent. And I, I drew this little diagram that hopefully will help help you understand. And the words at the top are from Geshe Mikhelson Wanglo from her booklet. So it says, all existence, so whatever exists is uh, substantially established. So that term refers to all things that exist. And the reason is because they have an independent existence. I'm not sure what they mean by that, but anyway, that's what this school says. Um, so even an imputedly existent phenomena like a table, for example, is still substantially established because when the phenomena, that should be phenomenon, phenomenon that is imputed or designated is sought, an independent entity is found. In other words, when you search for the table, even though it's just imputedly existing, they say when you search for it, you will find something that's independent. That we'll, we'll look, there's something that comes up a bit later about this that hopefully will clarify that, but that's just her explanation. So anyway, this school wants to give, like Jeffrey said, wants to give some kind of substantiality, substantial mode of existing, even to imputed phenomena like tables and plates and bodies and so on. So they are substantially established. But then the other term is uh, substantially existent, and that only uh, refers to ultimate truth. So only ultimate truths are substantially existent. Um, and the reason for saying something is substantially existent is because you don't have to perceive other phenomena in order to perceive them. It's like they can just appear to our mind directly from their own side without having to see other things. So like those very uh, tiny partless particles are substantially existent because we don't have to see other things other than them in order to perceive them. So, um, yeah, so the bigger circle, the darker circle, uh, is uh, represents substantially established things. That means all things that exist. And then the smaller circle, the lighter one, is things that are substantially existent. So those things that are substantially existent are, sorry, yeah, substantially existent, they're also substantially established. Not everything that's substantially established is substantially existent. So how many possibilities are there between those two uh, types of phenomena? Substantially established and substantially existent? Three. Huh? Three. Pause it. <laughs> Something that is both would be 
um, a partless particle would be both substantially established and substantially existing. A, um, a person would be substantially established, but not substantially existing. And the horns of a rabbit would be neither. <laughs> but I think in the game, you can't posit things that are non-existent. Mm -hmm. I, the thought that, I, thought they, <laughs> I thought they did that for the, the um, things that are not. No, I, my understanding is, in, in order to posit something in this little game, <laughs> it has to be something existent. To compare them, but not to posit it as something that's neither. I mean, you're right in the sense that, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's done. Uh, if you posit something that doesn't exist at all, like rabbit's horns or flower growing in the sky, that would be neither of those neither substantially established or substantially existent. But I, I thought that in the in the debating books they say you can't posit non-existent things. Is that right? I thought so. Yeah. But you are right. <laughs> well, if you, if you can't do that, then it's only two possibilities. Yeah. So, yeah. Because there's nothing, nothing. that's uh, like three, substantial. Three with nothing that's neither. Mm -hmm. Hmm? Three possibilities with nothing that's neither. There's still three. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But it's not really a third possibility. <laughs> yeah. If there's nothing. It's neither. But yeah, if it was okay to posit non existence, <laughs> then you could say there are three possibilities. I thought that was done all the time for things yeah. that are neither. I, I, I mean, it's been a while since I looked at that, but that's what I mm -hmm. remember. And so we're saying that existence and substantially established in this school are mutually inclusive. Yeah, those would be mutually inclusive. Whatever exists is substantially established. Whatever substantially established exists. Okay, does that help? I don't know, but again, I don't know how important this is. <laughs> if it's a really big deal. It's, uh, but the term substantially existent does come up quite a bit, quite often and and we'll look at it again later today so it is it is important to have some understanding of what that term means substantially existent okay so now we're ready to move on to the next uh, topic uh, which is object possessors. So this is the fifth um, point, mode of uh, asserting object possessors. So this term, object possessors, Yul Chen in Tibetan, is kind of an odd term. N my experience, when, when it comes up in texts, mostly it refers to minds. Minds or, you know, consciousnesses are object possessors because they always have an object. It said that there can never be a mind without an object that it's perceiving or experiencing. And in that way, mind possesses an object. Mind has an object. Possessing doesn't necessarily mean like ownership, but just having. However, they do say that the term object possessor 
can, there, there are other kinds of object possessors. In fact, there are three kinds of object possessors. So one is minds, another is names and terms. Um, so they are said to possess objects in the sense that they, they express a meaning. So for example, the word car, the word car isn't a car, but it conveys that meaning of car. Because if we say like, so-and-so bought a new car, that will bring some understanding to our mind without having to go and look at the car. <laughs> we know what a car is. So I think that's my understanding. <coughs> Names and terms possess objects. They have objects that they refer to and that they can, in a way, represent. You know, the word car represents cars. <laughs> That's my explanation of it, but yeah, how I understand it. And then the third type of object possessors are persons. They say they are object possessors because they possess objects. <laughs> so that does seem to be more the sense of possessing, you know? We, we have our robes and um, other things. We're not, have to, we're not supposed to have too many possessions, but we do have some possessions. And then I was thinking about animals. If animals are persons, do they possess things? Possess their bodies. The turkeys possess their wings and their feet. A nest. Huh? A nest. A nest? A nest. A nest. A nest. Food cache. <laughs> squirrels have nuts. Territory. Right. <laughs> when Karuna has a catnip toy, I consider that hers. <laughs> That's right. Okay, so anyway, persons have objects, own objects, so they are also object possessors. So those are the three types of object possessors. But here, uh, well, yeah, here it's mainly minds, but also persons. And so the first point here is looking at um, how this school uh, explains a person. And they use this term illustration, the illustration of a person. And in Geshe Zopa's explanation, he says this term illustration means um, what you find when you analyze what a person is. So, um, you know, we say, uh, even though we say there's no like self-sufficient, substantially existent person, but there's still a conventionally existing person that experiences happiness and suffering, creates karma, experiences the results of karma, meditates, eventually attains nirvana and so on. So there's, there's a conventionally existing person. So when they analyze among the aggregates, you know, what exactly can you point to as the person? So different schools come up with different answers to this. And in this school, the Vaibhashika school, there are, well, there's different sub-schools of Vaibhashika, so they have their different views. So some say that the illustration of the person is the mere collection of aggregates. And I couldn't find any explanation of what mere means here, um, but that's what they say, mere. So just the collection, just the collection of body and mind. They say that's the person. And some Vaibhashikas say it's the mental consciousness. 
which I think coming from Prasangika view makes more sense because that's the thing that continues when we die. So when one life comes to an end, the body is left behind, but the mind, especially the mental consciousness, will carry on from life to life, carrying the karmic seeds. So that makes more sense. Say that's the thing you point to as being the person. So there's not a whole lot of explanation about this. But when you when studying Madhyamaka philosophy, they usually do go into how the different schools explain a person and, and what kind of person does exist, what kind of person doesn't exist. So it is it is a topic that's that's important. But mainly in this section, there's discussion about minds, different kinds of minds, different kinds of consciousnesses. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this now, because when we get to the next school, the Sotrantika school, there there's a lot more explanation about all the different kinds of minds, like valid and non-valid and so on. Um, so I'm not going to go into the definitions of deep explanations of those here. I'll just briefly mention them for those who might be unfamiliar. So two kinds of mind, one way of dividing mind is into two, valid and non-valid. And just roughly valid minds or valid cognizers are those that experience their object correctly and in a reliable way, they can be relied upon to have understanding. Um, and non-valid cognizers would be those that are not, they're not, they're not necessarily completely wrong. They could be. Some, some of them are really wrong, <laughs> like uh, seeing rabbit horns. <laughs> seeing a rabbit with the ears sticking up and thinking those are horns, or seeing a scarecrow and thinking it's a human being. So those are examples of wrong consciousnesses. But sometimes there just might be one little element that's not ideal, not fully reliable. Um, but we'll look at that more in the next, um, the next school. What are the different kinds of non-valid cognizers? And then, uh, of, and then within valid cognizers, there are two kinds, direct perceivers and inferential cognizers. So direct perceivers are minds that experience their object uh, in a very direct way. And sometimes they, they say nakedly, you know, kind of, um, yeah, very direct and clear way of perceiving their objects. Whereas inferential cognizers, these are conceptual minds. And they don't know their objects directly, nakedly, but instead they know their objects by means of a, a mental image. So for example, if Venerable Jigme was here in the room and we could look at her and see her sitting wherever she is. So that would be an example of a direct perception. You know, when the object is right there, we can see it. It's very clear and very vivid. But when she's not here, 
um, we can still <coughs> think of her. So we can, you know, bring up a mental image of Venerable Jigme. We do this all the time, you know, we people and think of objects and think of places. So when we're thinking of a person or an object, we can have this mental image of the person. Um, but, it, you know, it's kind of hazy. I don't know about you, but, <laughs> you know, it's not that clear and sharp as when she's right there and you're looking at her, you know, and it, it, some details may be missing. <laughs> um, like when we try to visualize the Buddha, right? It's not always very easy to get all the details and to have a very, sh you know, sharp, clear image as when you're looking at a picture or a statue of the Buddha. So when, uh, so when we have conceptual minds, that means it's just our mental consciousness and not our sense, uh, sense experiences. Um, the, the men that, that kind of mind, conceptual mind is dealing with an image, a mental image of the object rather than the object itself. So inferential cognizers are conceptual and, um, and so they're not, you know, as direct and sharp as direct perceivers. And what distinguishes an inferential cognizer is um, it arises in dependence on a reason. So, um, so there's some object that we're not able to perceive, to see directly, but we can use a reason to understand it, to know it. Like a common example would be if you see smoke coming out of the chimney of Ananda, um, you can infer there's a fire in the fireplace down below, or the furnace, what it's called. So you, don't, you can't see the fire. It's deep down in the bottom level inside the furnace, but you can infer that there is a fire burning because of the smoke. So the smoke is like a reason or a sign to infer the presence of a fire. So this kind of mind is actually very, very important in our, in our practice because we need to understand emptiness or selflessness. That's the most important object uh, we need to understand in order to free ourselves from suffering and the causes of suffering. And emptiness or selflessness is a kind of object we can't see. It's not visible to any of our senses. Um, it's a permanent phenomenon, an uncompounded phenomenon, so it isn't accessible to any of our senses. So the only way we can understand emptiness, we can get a experience of emptiness is by uh, this kind of mind, an inferential cognizer, using a reason, using a sign to get it, to be able to uh, have an experience of emptiness. And, and then once, once we, that, that's like our initial understanding of emptiness is by means of a reason or a sign. And the kind of mind that understands emptiness in that way is called an inferential cognizer or an inference. We infer the existence of emptiness or, sign, or selflessness. And then we continue meditating on that understanding of emptiness and the mental image of emptiness will kind of get um, thinner and thinner and eventually disappear altogether. And then our mind is able to have a direct perception of emptiness, a direct realization of emptiness.
But in order for that to happen, in order to get to that point, we have to first go through the inferential cognizer. That's why that particular type of mind is very important. Do animals have inferential cognizers? <laughs> I've never like heard that. Why it's so great to be explained. human? Well, I think they can. I can't really think of an example of it right now, but um, if you take a cat treat and put it in your hand, the cat know can kind of know it's there and maybe not from smelling it yeah but I, I was thinking like you know dogs have a very strong sense of smell yeah. mm. and so they could smell right. a person or mm. some other kind of object even if they can't see it mm. I don't know if that would be an inference or not it's the same as seeing smoke but not seeing the fire sorry Smelling something but not seeing it would still be yeah. the same as seeing the smoke but not the fire, wouldn't it be? Yeah, well there there's a cause and effect relationship where there's smoke, there's fire. Fire is the cause of smoke, so if there's smoke, there must be fire. <laughs> um, whereas animal, yeah. A squirrel that hit its nuts and it knows where its nuts are. It doesn't yeah. see them, but it can remember mm -hmm. and go back. Well, that doesn't require a reason. It was a direct the reason is that it was there before. Mm -hmm. Plus, animals can, um, wild animals react to smoke. They know fire's coming. Mm -hmm. And um, that's how they, they smoke beehives and the bees drop because the bees know it's, they got to get out of there. They got to start doing something. My tree knows um, at a certain time of day, if you walk up, that she's going to get fed lunch or she's going to get walked. And mm -hmm. she comes or she hides based on that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> or like dogs can hear their owner's car drive and like, you know, break and they get like excited before the owner comes to the door because mm -hmm. they're inferring that when they hear that noise of the car, mm -hmm. their owner is going to come inside. Mm -hmm. So I guess the reason is that happened in the past, mm -hmm. because with a memory, it could be like sort of some kind of direct. But it's the same with smoke access. and fire. We have seen mm -hmm. fires producing mm -hmm. smoke. So having had that experience before, mm -hmm. we know mm -hmm. something we have. So I would think, yeah, it seems to make sense that animals could have. So you don't have to be like a, a philosopher or. Mm -hmm. a <laughs> highly intellectual person to be able to have inferential cognition. Is, is the example of gradually wearing away the mental image to get to direct perception, is that kind of like the analogy of the sticks of fire that what Geshe Taki said around the two sticks rubbing against each other that the fire burns it and disintegrates the two pieces of wood leaning on each other? where you use your conceptuality to eventually get to the direct perception? Yeah, I mean, it's, I'm not sure. I, 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 um, as I was talking about that, I, I wondered, what is it that causes the mental image to get thinner? Mm -hmm. And there is an explanation. It, it might, I might be able to find it in Meditation on Emptiness, because he does kind of explain the process of going from the inferential cognizer to the direct perception. So I'll see if it explains it in there. But you definitely have to keep on meditating 
and maybe you also have to accumulate merit, mm -hmm. <laughs> be a good person and create lots of merit. Yeah, so there could be a number of uh, a number of factors there. But is this also why, like, my mind is constantly trying to use an image to understand, like, emptiness or the mind, like how we use mind stream or the seeds or any of those things that we use to describe concepts, it's all used. We use it by using objects to try to describe it. And my mind's always trying to mm -hmm. make an analogy of something from like a physical object as a example to try to understand it. I'm not sure if that would be called inference though. Okay. That's more like analogy. Yeah. Analogies that such and such is like such mm -hmm. and such. And apparently Buddha used that a lot. He used a lot of analogies just to help people mm -hmm. get a sense of these deeper, more subtle concepts or objects that weren't so easy to understand. Um, but I'm not sure if that would be called an inference or not. I'm not sure. Okay, so then it gives divisions of the first of the two types of valid cognizers, which are valid direct perceivers. And it says at the bottom, three kinds of valid direct perceivers. Uh, the first one is sense. So these would that would include our five uh, physical senses: seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and touch. So with those five uh, senses, we can have valid direct perceivers. If we see uh, Maitri and we see her correctly we know it's maitri and not karuna <laughs> and not a bear so if we have a correct uh perception of the object then that would be a valid direct perceiver and then mental um so mental direct perceivers this is um mm, more difficult to understand. It said that um, after we have a sense perception, like we see something or we hear something, shortly afterwards, we, we usually started thinking about it. We started having thoughts and conceptions and associations and making stories and all that kind of thing. So they say in between the, the direct perception with our eyes, for example, and then the, the thoughts about the object, there's a very brief moment of a mental direct perception, meaning our mind, the mental consciousness, rather than any of the five sense consciousnesses, the mental consciousness is directly perceiving that object, but that's so brief, we're not able to recognize it, we're not able to be aware of it, because then our mind immediately switches into thinking conceptual uh, thoughts. And when we have conceptual thoughts about the object, then we're actually dealing with an image, a mental image of the object rather than the actual object itself. So that's an example of a mental direct perceiver. Another example of mental direct perception is um, clairvoyance or super knowledges, Venable calls them, um, like reading somebody else's mind <laughs> uh, mind reading. So that can occur as a result of developing concentration, uh, very good concentration. You can be able to see others' minds. 
And so that's mental direct perceiving. You're not seeing with your eyes or your ears. It's your mental consciousness seeing another person's thoughts. So more highly accomplished meditators might have that ability. And then yogic, the last one, yogic direct perceivers. Um, so um, according to this school, a yogic direct perceiver is attained only by aryas. Um, aryas are those who gain the direct realization of, of selflessness. So they're kind of highly accomplished meditators. And um, we'll look at examples of yogic direct perception on the next slide. What are, yeah. What kind of objects are are perceived by yogic direct perceivers? But yeah, you have to do a lot of meditation and be fairly high, highly accomplished to have that kind of direct perceiver. And then it says no self cognizers. So um, some schools like Sutrantika and Chidamatra. Uh, I think I mentioned this one before that they say that when, for example, when we see an object we have a, a visual perception of an object. One part of the mind is directed at that perception itself. So there's the eye consciousness looking at the object, and then another consciousness, which is called a self-cognizer or self-knower, is looking at the mind itself, is only aware of that mind itself. So we'll, we'll learn more about that when we get to Satranta because they believe in it. They, they are very adamant that there are self-cognizers and they go into a lot of explanation. But anyway, this school says no, those don't exist. So that's all we need to know for now. So the next slide then, uh, yeah, goes into two types of yogic direct perceivers because these, these are, uh, states of mind that one needs to develop if one wants to follow the path. So um, one type of yogic direct perceiver is realizing subtle impermanence. And so a yogi, a meditator would be meditating on subtle impermanence, the changing nature of things. And at a certain point, they would uh, have a direct perception. It's actually a mental direct perception, not with their eyes, but with their yeah, mental consciousness, have a mental direct perception of subtle impermanence. So that's the meaning of yogic direct perceiver. And the second is um, yogic direct perceivers that realize selflessness of persons. So according to this school, there's two types of selflessness of persons. Um, the first is a coarse level. This is the emptiness of a permanent, unitary, and independent self or person. Uh, the term person and self, those are actually synonymous. Those are mutually inclusive. In fact, there's four terms that are mutually inclusive. Uh, self, person, being, and I. So anytime you encounter those terms, they are all have the same meaning. So um, the non-Buddhists, at least some of the non-Buddhist schools, 
believe in a permanent Unitarian independent self. Um, what I've heard explained was that some of the masters of those schools would meditate and they would gain very good uh, concentration and would gain the ability to remember past lives, maybe even see future lives. And they were able to see that, you know, there's a being in one life who creates karma and then in a later life experiences the result of that karma. And so they figure there's something, yeah, the body dies, but there's something that goes from one life to the next. So they thought about that and they came up with this idea. <laughs> um, this idea of a, a permanent unitarian independent self. They usually use the term Atman, I think is the Hindu, uh, Sanskrit term Atman or soul. Um, so it, it has these qualities of being permanent and I'm not sure here if permanent really means unchanging as we normally think, or if it means more like ongoing, eternal, you know, not dying after one life, but carrying on permanent in that sense. And then unitary means it doesn't have parts, partless, can't be divided up. That's one whole monolithic thing. And then independent here means not depending on causes and conditions, which is true anyway for something that's permanent. Permanent things are not dependent on causes and conditions, but also independent in the sense of not depending on the aggregates. It's like separate from the aggregate, separate from the body and mind, like an, another kind of phenomena other than the body and the mind. So they came up with this idea and they taught it to their followers and it became widespread. <laughs> so Buddha probably learned about this as well when he was young. And um, yeah, so he discovered that there's no such thing, no such thing as a permanent unitary independent self. So this is something all the Buddhist schools agree on. They're unanimous in um, refuting the existence of that kind of self as like a complete fantasy, a complete you know, creation of the mind. And the, the belief in this kind of a self is always acquired, never innate, meaning that, you know, sentient beings do not have this kind of belief innately, in, you know, intuitively, but they only learn it by studying philosophy. So studying with a teacher who teaches you this, then you accept it, believe it. Okay, so that's one kind of selflessness. So you meditate on that and realize there's no such thing as that kind of self, permanent, unitarian, independent, and then you can gain this realization, a yogic direct perceiver uh, that directly realizes that kind of emptiness or selflessness. And that's that's coarse. And then the subtle um, uh, selflessness of persons is the emptiness of a self-supporting, substantially existent self. So this one is innate, according to Lama Tsongkhapa, anyway. 
Um, that means everybody has it. Every being, even animals, even Maitri and Karuna, um, have in their mind this conception of a self-supporting, substantially existent self. So, do you remember what it means, the meaning of substantially existent? So what would be a substantially existent self? It can't be broken down. No, that wasn't quite the meaning of substantially existent as opposed to imputedly existent. It's not necessary to perceive something false in order to perceive it. Yeah, you can. You don't have to perceive other things in order to perceive that kind of self. You can just see that kind of that kind of self. You can just see it by itself without having to see other things first. And self-supporting um, means independent of the aggregates, not completely independent, as in the first one. But um, yeah, it said that this this notion of self, this conception of a self, we all have it. We're born with it. It is it is a natural, instinctive thing we have in our mind. So it conceives of a self that's it's not completely outside of the aggregates or separate from the aggregates. It's somewhere within the aggregates, but a little bit different, a little bit above, like the analogy is that of a, a ruler, a governor, a king, a boss, a CEO, you know, something that's in charge. So that's how it appears. It appears like there's an I, a self, that's running the show, that's controlling the body and the mind and my life and everything. You know that one? <laughs> Sound familiar? <laughs> yeah. So that that is this kind of self. It see, it's it's not completely separate from the aggregates, but still just a little bit in a superior position, in a controlling position, or in a maybe even an owner. You know, like an owner of the body and the mind. Like we say, my body, my mind, my thoughts. What is this me that is owning my body and my mind and my thoughts? We normally never think about that. But there is a feeling like there is something in there that owns and controls and manages <laughs> all of this, this whole factory of body and mind. Is that also what gets extended to the ruler of the universe? Not just the body, but thinking it's... <laughs> No, maybe you're saying having that idea about our own body yeah. gives rise to the idea of a, a ruler the of the whole, universe. Yeah. Maybe there's got to be somebody in charge of all of this. It can't just be running by itself. <laughs> Seems like the idea of a ruler would be coarse because it would be learned, learned through philosophy. Yeah, that's true. We don't have an innate sense of. Um, a ruler of the universe. We, we learn that from our parents and our teachers and so on and so forth, but it's not something we come into the world thinking, unless we had a strong belief in it in past lives. If we had a strong belief in a ruler, a creator, a god in past lives, then even as a small child, we might think that way, even if nobody tells us. But it's still, yeah, I think it's still acquired rather than innate.
So according to most Buddhist schools, there's one exception we'll look at later, but most Buddhist schools refute this kind of a self. They say there's no such thing as this kind of self-supporting, substantial existence self, self that's the controller of the aggregates. And so one would meditate on that, one would use reasons to refute that kind of self and come to realize it's empty, it doesn't exist. And then with further meditation, one would gain a yogic direct perceiver. And according to this school, you have to be an Arya, did I say that already? Mm -hmm. To have a yogic direct perceiver. Um, that I found in one of the volumes, I think it's volume two, um, Prasangika says otherwise, according to Madhyamaka Prasangika, uh, you don't have to be an Arya, you can be an ordinary being and have well, only the first kind, I think, yeah, uh, you can be an ordinary being and have a yogic direct perceiver of subtle impermanence. But the other schools say you have to be an Arya to have a yogic direct perceiver. Also, a yogic direct perceiver depends on having a union of calm abiding and special insight. So you have to develop calm abiding and you also have to develop special insight into one of these objects like impermanence, emptiness, and then bring those together have the union of calm abiding and special insight. So that's actually what gives rise to a yogic direct perceiver. That's pretty highly, <laughs> pretty special state of mind. Um, okay, then the last point, no, we didn't do the last one. The last down at the bottom, this is a unique view of this school. It says a valid sense direct perceiver is not necessarily a consciousness because the sense powers are valid direct perceivers. What? <laughs> yeah, so none of the other schools would agree with this. So the sense powers, according to Buddhism, it's not like our gross eye, but rather some kind of subtle matter or form within the eye and and it, it it's so subtle it can't even be can't even be seen it's not a, it's not accessible to any of our uh, sense perceptions only a mental direct perception can see the the sense power but anyway we have these five sense powers eye ear nose tongue and then body and um, those are instrumental in being able to have direct perceivers you know if our if we don't have the eye sense power we don't we won't be able to see we don't have the ear sense power we won't be able to hear so they are they do play a, an essential part in our perception but they themselves don't perceive it's only the consciousness the consciousness arises in dependence on the sense powers um, there's actually three conditions that give rise to a sense direct perceiver. Does anyone remember what they are? Object. The object. Object. So that's one necessary component. Prior moments of consciousness. Yeah, the prior moment of consciousness. And the sense power. And the sense power. 
Yeah. So when those three things come together, there's an object, the previous moment of consciousness, and the sense power, functioning sense power. So those three things uh, are the causes for the next moment of mind, which is this um, direct perceiver, seeing an object or hearing a sound. So the sense power does play an essential role in being able to perceive things, but the sense power itself doesn't perceive, according to the other schools. But according to this school, <laughs> they say that the sense powers do perceive, as well as the consciousness. They don't say that the sense powers are consciousnesses. They're not saying that. But they, they're saying that the sense power does perceive the object. And they have a reason for it. <laughs> the reason they say this is that if it was the consciousness alone that perceived uh, objects, we should be able to see things on the other side of the wall. Because consciousness <laughs> consciousness is, is, is formless. It's, it's not form, and it's not obstructed by form. It should be able to see through the wall. But that's not the case. We can't see what's on the other side of the wall. And so they think that means that it's not just the consciousness, but it's also the sense power that is perceiving the object. And because the sense power is form, it's obstructed by form. It can't see what's on the other side of the wall. That's their reasoning. I don't know if it makes sense, but... <laughs> it doesn't, because, because something is dependent on a sense power doesn't mean the sense power is the conscious, is conscious, yeah. No, but what they say is that when we're perceiving an object, yeah. we're seeing the cat, the iPhone, for example, yeah. it's both our consciousness and the eye sense power that are seeing it together. Both of those two are required to be able to see. Just the consciousness alone or the sense power alone is not able to perceive, but the two together are able to perceive but we would accept that the consciousness is dependent on the sense power. And so it's restricted by the sense power. The sense, power uh, sense power can't go through the wall, then the consciousness can't see what's beyond it. Well, there's another thing about this school. It's not mentioned in the text, but um, probably we'll get to it later when, when we get to Satranika. All the other schools talk about an aspect. Um, you, you probably heard this if you heard lower teachings, teachings on lower rig. They say that when we perceive, when we're seeing, for example, this TV screen, um, what's actually happening is um, the, the eye consciousness arises in the aspect of the object. And they say it's a little bit like what happens with a mirror. When you have an, a mirror and you have an object in front of the mirror, the mirror will take on an aspect of that object. So they say it's similar with what our mind is doing. Our, our eye consciousness is taking on an aspect of the object that we see. So all the other Buddhist schools say that. That's that they say that's what's actually happening when we see an object. But this school doesn't say that. This school um, doesn't say that um, there's an aspect, an aspect that arises. And I seem to recall hearing something, and I, I was trying to find it, and I couldn't find it. So I could be wrong. 
but <laughs> um, yeah, this po this possible idea that I heard was that according to this school, consciousness actually goes out of the body and directly contacts the object. Anyone heard that before? <laughs> and when I met Ayakema, when I got ordained, Ayakema was there as well. We got ordained together and um, we had a conversation one day and I don't know how we got around to this, but this is what she said. She said, when we look at the wall, our eye consciousness is going out and touching the wall. And I was like, oh, <laughs> she was adamant about it. Yes, that's it. so she studied in Sri Lanka. Um, so that would be the Pali tradition. But, um, and I seem to recall hearing that as well about this school, not other schools, but this school. But where did you hear it? You, you, you were nodding your head. Uh, I've read it somewhere. Um, somewhere. <laughs> the same for me. I feel like I've read it somewhere. I think it's yeah. refuted in the 400 towards the end of the book. That's oh, one of that the things be. that's being refuted in the 400 by yeah. Aryadeva. And, and he refutes that, yeah, then it would take longer to see things that are further. It doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. But then that also makes sense. That, that also explains why they say we can't see things on the other side of the wall. Our mind can't go through the wall <laughs> because it's stuck with this uh, sense power. The mind and the, the consciousness and the sense power together have to see the object. Well, the, the eye consciousness can go through the wall, but not the sense power. <laughs> it stops at the wall. <laughs> I don't know, something like that, but that may be their way of thinking. But I should have asked her, I didn't think about this at the time, but I should have asked her, so when we see the sun, <laughs> what's happening? Is our mind, is our icon just going and touching the sun? Or a star that's like, I don't know how many light years away? But if the consciousness isn't physical, then it shouldn't matter how far away the object is. Yeah. It, it doesn't have to go yeah. anywhere. It can't go anywhere if it's not yeah, physical. Occupy space. But yeah, it wouldn't matter because it, it could it wouldn't take any time for it to travel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what I thought of with the reputation. So I'll have to look that up. I couldn't find it in my other materials. But anyway, I yeah, it's possible that that's what this school is saying. That the consciousness is actually going out and having direct contact with the object. Can the object have more than one aspect? With, with you mean those schools who? Yeah. We, we'll get to that. Yeah, that's, that's a point of debate. <laughs> Let's see if we can go a little further. I was kind of hoping to finish Vabhasaka today, but I don't think we're going to be able to do it. But the next, okay, so the next point is about selflessness. So we kind of already covered this already. Um, the selflessness of persons, there are two types, coarse, emptiness of a permanent unitary independent person, and subtle, emptiness of a self-supporting substantial existing person. So that's the most important one that one needs to understand, to realize, to get a realization of in order to overcome the afflictions and get out of samsara. So it's that subtle one. So that's very important. Then, then the next point says, no selflessness of phenomena. So this school, um, 
Yeah, in the text, actually, the, the, the sentence says, Vibhashikas assert that established base is pervaded by self of phenomena. So established base is another synonym of existent. So, yeah, whatever exists is pervaded by self of phenomena. And I wasn't able to find much explanation of this. The only explanation I found was in Geshe, Geshe Jamba Tekchok's um, commentary. So I'll read what he says. Um, each phenomenon has its own identity, which can be discovered when it is looked for. And he gives the example of a vase. When we search for a vase, we find the specific function of the vase. And this function existing within the collection of parts of the vase is the identity of the vase. It is findable. I saying if we search for the vase, we'll find, this is according to this school, okay? <laughs> we'll find there's a function. It performs a function, I guess. Is that what that's what they say? We'll be able to find something within the parts of the vase. That's that function. So he says it's findable, but if we mentally separate the vase into its parts, the function is not there. The apprehension of it ceases. That's the only explanation I could find of that. So, but it does seem, I found, yeah, that this school does say that things are truly existing. So they would say that the base is truly existing, the table is truly existing. Um, and earlier mentioned, yeah, everything is independent, everything has an independent entity. But, yeah, like I said, I couldn't find much explanation of that. So just have to leave it at that. So they do say that persons are empty of some kind of self, but phenomena that are not persons, so other kinds of phenomena, do have a self. You're not refuting a self of phenomena. Does that apply to the aggregates then? What? They're then they're saying the aggregates truly exist. I think so. Including the mental. Yeah. I think they think they, I think they say everything truly exists. Whatever exists is truly existing. So whether it's the you know the body, the whole body, or all the parts down to the tiniest particles, all of those things are truly existing. But not the person. Um, no, they would say a person is truly existing. <laughs> well, they would. Well, they don't refute it. You don't. You don't refute. None of the schools refute true existence until uh, you get to Chita Mantra mind-only school, and they only refute uh, true existence with some things, but not other things. It's only Madhyamaka, this is a unique feature of Madhyamaka, that refutes true existence. So all the other schools uh, assert at least some things are truly existent. Vibhashaka um, said ultimate truths are only things that can't be broken down further or things that cease yeah. to exist. I don't think ultimate existence and true existence are the same for this school. I think they would make a difference. Yeah, this is this is one of the difficulties when you're studying this, this when you're doing tenets. You have these different terms like true existence and ultimate existence, 
but then each school <laughs> will explain those terms differently. It's kind of complicated. And yeah, this school, there isn't that much explanation about what some of these terms mean. So I think that's why the um, commentaries are relatively light. Okay, so the last point here, I, I put this word in red because there's just a slight spelling mistake in the text. In the text it says Vasi Putriyas, but it should be Vatsi Putriyas. There's a T in there, not a big deal. So this is the name of one of the subschools, one of the 18 subschools of the Vibhashika. And they have an unusual assertion, they say that there is a self-supporting substantial existence self. This is the only Buddhist school or sub-school that uh, isn't on board with refuting a self-supporting substantial existence self. And in fact, some, some, there's some Buddhist masters who question, are they really Buddhist? <laughs> are they really in the, in the door or not? So there's debate about that. But anyway, um, yeah, so they say there is a self-supporting substantially existent self. And it's something that's neither one entity with nor a different entity from the aggregates. So Geshe Jamatekshaw gave some explanation about that. Um, so they say it, it's not this kind of self isn't one with the aggregates because it isn't multiple. Like the aggregates are multiple, but the self is only one. There's only one self, but many aggregates. So they're not one. And they also say that if the self was one with the aggregates, then it would die when the aggregates die. It would get burned up in the cremation fire. And, and they say that would be nihilistic. That would be a nihilistic view because then there's no self that goes to the next life and experiences the results of actions of karma. So that's why they, you know, they say that the self isn't one entity with the aggregates. But then on the other hand, they say it's not a different entity from the aggregates because if it was different, then um, there would be no relationship. The aggregates and the self would have no relationship at all. And they say that would be like the extreme of eternalism or absolutism, permanence, that, that extreme. So they're trying to avoid two extremes here. <laughs> they're trying to avoid nihilism and eternalism. And so they say it's neither one nor different. And then they go on to say it's neither permanent nor impermanent. And for the other Buddhist schools, they're really going far with that because <laughs> the other Buddhist schools, whatever exists has to be either permanent or impermanent. There's nothing that isn't one of those two. Um, but they have their reasons for saying that. What is their reason? Um, yeah, they say the person isn't, isn't permanent because a person changes. For example, a child grows up, becomes an adult, so it's not permanent. But they also say it's not impermanent. A person isn't impermanent because the same person who creates karma 
will experience the result in the future. <laughs> so there's some kind of part of nature of the person that continues. Anyway, so this is their reasoning. And what Geshe Chama Tikshuk said is that the Buddha actually did teach this view. There must be some scriptures, or maybe when he was with certain people, he did teach this kind of self. And it was for people who had strong imprints from having previously followed one of the non-Buddhist schools and weren't quite ready to hear the full truth, that there is no such thing as a self-supporting, substantially existent self. If, they had, if Buddha had taught them that, then they may have uh, lost their refuge and maybe they fell into nihilism, didn't want to do any practice. So Buddha understood that, you know, he had to treat those people delicately and <laughs> kind of get them away from the view of a permanent unitary independent self, but they weren't quite ready to go to this subtle uh, form of selflessness. And so, so Buddha taught this view, and then eventually, um, they, by practicing, meditating, and so on, their mind became more pure, and then they were ready to abandon the idea of a self-supporting, substantially existent self. So it was Buddha's skillful means to teach them this. Okay, so that's selflessness. So, uh, yeah, we're going to have to stop. Uh, yeah, the next thing is grounds and paths. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So let's dedicate the merit. Due to the snare, may we soon attain the awakened state of Guru Buddha, that we may be able to liberate all sentient beings from their sufferings. May the precious body mind not yet born arise and grow. May that born have no decline, but increase forever.